Well, I don't know if it's true or not. Um, tradition says that it is. But it is said that the great reformer Martin Luther once was accosted by Satan, who began to accuse him with a torrent of relentless accusations. It went something like this. Satan came to Luther and he said, Luther, how dare you pretend to be a reformer? And Luther, let your memory do its duty. Let your conscience do its duty. You have committed this sin and you've been guilty of that sin. You've omitted this duty and you've neglected that duty. Let your reform begin in your own bosom. How dare you attempt to be a reformer of the church? It is said that Luther, with his characteristic self-possession, magnanimity, he said to Satan, Satan, take up the slate that lies on the table and write down all the sins which you have now charged me. And if there be any additional, append them too. Satan rejoiced at the opportunity of accusing further, took up a pencil, and wrote a long and painful roll of real or imputed sins of Luther. Luther, at the end of this, said, Have you written the whole? And Satan answered, Yes. And a black and dark catalog it is, and sufficient to deter you from making any attempt to reform others till you have first purified and reformed yourself. Luther said, Take up the slate. And write as I shall dictate to you, my sins are many. My transgressions in the sight of an infinitely holy God are countless as the hairs on my head. And in me there dwelleth no good thing. But Satan, after that last sin you have recorded, write this announcement, which I shall repeat from 1 John 1.7. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses all sin. What a great story, isn't it? A great reminder that no matter how fierce, how relentless, the accusations of Satan or the pain of guilt may come into our lives, we're reminded that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all guilt. Hearing this story reminds me of the cosmic battle that we are in today. Not the cosmic battle of good and evil, but a cosmic battle that is both without and within of guilt versus grace. Many believers struggle with this every day of their lives. In fact, I know as I look at you today, I know that many of you struggle with guilt on a daily, if not moment-by-moment -moment basis. The arrows of accusation that continue to sting your conscience with guilt and shame and torment. And you wrestle daily with this guilt and shame. Sometimes when we sin, we often handle it like we do, just like Adam did. We try to hide from God, thinking somehow that if I can simply hide from God, he won't know what I've done. We take another step too. Oftentimes, we'll take the fig leaves of excuses. We try to cover our shame, our guilt, by excusing it, blaming it, ignoring it, minimizing it. 
It didn't work for Adam, and it doesn't work for us either. So what are we to do? I think Luther's example is stellar and a great reminder for us. But to remember the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. This morning we're going to begin in part two of a message I started a couple of weeks ago, God's answer to our guilt. We're looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 15, uh, 12 through 21. And this particular portion of Scripture is recognized as not only the heart of Romans, but also one of the most difficult parts of Romans because it is very complicated and it is very stretching of our faith. Now, I mentioned a couple weeks ago as well that God gave us the book of Romans for a couple of very good reasons. One is because he wants to deepen our understanding and our wonder of the salvation that Christ has attained for us through his redemptive work on the cross. I can't tell you enough how you can never exhaust the joy, the glory, the wonder, the amazement of what Christ has done for you on the cross. And I pray that we as a family in Christ never tire from being reminded of this incredible truth and joy that God has given us. God has given us the book of Romans to not only deepen our awareness of that, but also to deepen our experience of the forgiveness and the acceptance and the righteousness that Christ has given us. There are so many believers that wrestle day in and day out, pained by guilt and shame, tormented day in and day out, they believe that Christ died on the cross for them. They want to believe that they have total forgiveness, but they struggle with maybe a memory, maybe something they've done. And for in, their, in their minds, they cannot come to the place where they can believe or grasp the reality that Christ has died for all their sin. Now I wonder if that's you this morning. I wonder how many of us here today are struggling with something in their life, a sin that maybe took place, a habit that won't go away. And you feel that God can forgive you here and he can forgive you there, but he cannot forgive you in this particular sin. If that's you this morning, you need to hear this message. God is speaking to you today through his word, and I hope you hear this. You see, when Christ died on the cross, the Bible says that he died for the sins of all mankind. All men, women, children, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. That Christ's death on the cross was enough to atone for the sins of the entire world. Experts tell us that there have been about 117 billion people that have lived throughout recorded human history. Just imagine how many sins have accumulated of those 117 billion people. There are not even terms that can describe that number. It goes beyond trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, even decillion. It's beyond description of how many sins. And yet the Bible says that God in his grace, through that one act of redemption on the cross purchased the atonement, the forgiveness of all the sins of all people that have ever lived. And should they choose to accept that forgiveness, 
They didn't know God's gift of grace in their lives. Well, we're going to look at this passage this morning, and I want to unpack it for you, and I want to begin with verse 12. Now, we're going to look primarily at verses 18 through 21, but I want to back up and look at verses 12 all the way following, because you need to understand the flow of this passage, of what Paul is saying here in order to grasp the depth of the wonder of the salvation that he is talking about that we have, the forgiveness we have in Christ. But we're going to explore this one question. How is God's grace greater than our guilt? Let me just kind of read this passage for you. Then I want to look back briefly at three things we learned a couple of weeks ago. How is God's grace greater than our guilt? It's greater in assurance, greater in significance, and greater in abundance. We'll look at those briefly. Then we'll begin to unpack two more things in verses 18 through 21 that Paul gives us. So let's begin in verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who is to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, through as through the one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness there resulted in justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Great passage. And yet heady. It is complex. How do you put that together to make sense of how this applies to our faith and understanding this incredible salvation that God has purchased for us. We attempted to unpack this a couple of weeks ago, saying that God's grace is greater than our guilt in several ways that he begins, Paul begins talking about. It is greater in assurance. He says in verse 15, he says, But the gift, the free gift, is not like the transgression. That the gift of grace is greater than the transgression. Meaning this. It is greater in assurance in that the power of sin and death can be broken, but the power of your salvation cannot be broken in Christ. And therefore, you have greater assurance because of God's grace. We saw that it's greater in significance. The gift is not like that which came to the one who sinned. 
It is greater in significance. How is it greater in significance? Meaning this, that God has loved us more than our sins deserve. You see, one of the attributes of who God is, I hope somebody gets that. Good. It's done. Good. One of the great attributes of God that is absolutely amazing, it's stunning to me, and it should be stunning to any one of us who take this salvation serious, take God's word serious, is this, is that God's love for you is greater than his hatred for your sin. God's love for you is greater than his hatred is of your sin. And therefore, God's grace is greater in significance. And then we looked at it as greater in abundance. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. He says in verse 17, what is Paul saying? He's saying this, listen, he's saying that God, through Jesus Christ, has blessed us with abundance in his grace greater even than what Adam had. See, it'd be one thing if God would have said, okay, I'm going to forgive you your sin. I'm going to put you back where you were with Adam, innocent again. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't simply restore you to a place of innocence that you had in Adam, but rather he does something more. In his grace, he abounds even more in what he gives to us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says that he's blessed us with every heavenly blessing in, or every blessing in the heavenlies. He has blessed us with a righteousness that is not our own. He has given us God's own righteousness in Jesus Christ. Did he give that to Adam? No, but he gave that to us. So what Paul is saying here is that God's grace is greater than our guilt. In abundance, God does far more for us than we can begin to imagine. But I want to explore these last two this morning with you. That God's grace is greater in essence and extravagance. Let me just kind of unpack these for you very quickly. It is greater in essence. What is he saying here? What Paul is saying in verses 18 and 19, which we're going to look at in just a moment, is that there is a, an essential difference, a fundamental difference between the one act of disobedience that Adam did and the one act of obedience that Jesus did. You'll hear this in these two verses. Listen to what he says. So then as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as the one, the many, for as, pardon me, for as one through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many are made righteous. Now, Paul does a couple of things here. In summary fashion, he says, here is how the world was plunged into its present misery. You had the very per first person who ever existed that rebelled against God. And when they did, it brought condemnation on all mankind, verse 18. It made all mankind sinners, verse 19. And it plunged us into our present misery that we're experiencing right now. But in the very same breath, he continues to tell us something more. That we're not lost in this place of hopelessness, this place of guilt. But through the single act of obedience of Jesus Christ, God has brought us forgiveness and brought us hope and brought us justification, he says. 
Now, let me just kind of clarify something that some people look at this verse, particularly verse 18, when Paul says, One act of righteousness resulted, therefore resulted justification of life to all men. Some people look at this verse and they say, well, you know what Paul's saying here? He's saying that this one act of righteousness resulted in justification of life to all men, that Paul is simply promoting universalism. He's saying that everyone's going to be saved. But that is exactly what Paul is not saying. Whenever you read a verse, you always have to read it within the context in which it is written. The cults are famous for taking a verse and pulling it, kicking and screaming out of context and making it mean whatever they want. Paul is not teaching universalism here. He is teaching that it is possible for all of us to be justified by our faith in Christ. But there is a conditionality. There is a, there is a condition you have to meet. And that condition is this, you must trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He says this in verse 17, but he says this in Romans chapter 3, a verse that we're familiar with because we looked at this some time back. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but Paul doesn't stop there. He says in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is this redemption, this justification is a gift. In order to make that gift operative in your life, you must accept it. And so what the Bible very clearly teaches is that there are going to be some who are going to accept that gift. And there are going to be others who are going to reject it. But God's gift of grace is conditional upon that acceptance and or rejection. So Paul's not talking about universalism here at all. In fact, it's not even worth spending much more time on it than we already have. Paul's main point in these verses is simply this. Paul's main point is he's trying to point out the essential difference, the effect, the fundamental difference that Adam's sin had, that one act of rebellion, versus that one act of righteousness that Jesus did on the cross for us. And he's going to look at the difference between the two of those. And you see that difference being spelled out in a word that Paul uses that helps us understand what he's saying here. It's the word made. Katastemi is the word that Paul uses here. Look at verse 19. He says, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. That word made right there means to charge or to impute. And so what Paul is saying here is that, that because of Adam's guilt, all mankind was charged with that guilt. They were imputed with his sinfulness. But on the other hand, he's saying that because of Christ's one act of obedience and our faith in him, we are imputed or charged with Christ's righteousness. We're given Christ's righteousness. Now, let me explain what he's saying here because it's easy to miss this up. He is not talking about a righteousness based on our conduct. He is talking about a righteousness that is a gift that is given to you that doesn't belong to you. But God gives to you as a gift the righteousness of his own son. He gives to you. It's a legal term in which God is declaring you righteous. That's what justification means, that the believing sinner believes and God declares him or her righteous. That's what justification means. And that's so fundamental for us to understand that it's by faith alone that we're given the gift of God's righteousness. Why is that important to understand? Because Paul's going to unpack that a little more when he starts talking about the law. 
But right now, what we need to understand is that righteousness he's talking about is not a righteousness of conduct, but rather it's a righteousness of position, a righteousness that you gain by receiving Christ. Now, why do I make that difference? Because Paul's going to talk about another kind of righteousness called sanctification. Right now, he's talking about justification, that God declares the believing sinner to be right before him because of his faith in Christ. That's justification. That happens the moment you trust Christ, God says, you are declared righteous. Let me ask you this. When you trusted Christ, do you remember feeling God's stamp of approval on you that says you are now righteous? Do you remember feeling that? Some of you did, some of you didn't. It doesn't matter whether you felt it or not. What matters is that God wants you to know that's a fact that happened in your life. That the moment you trusted Jesus Christ, God wiped away your sin and he gave you his own son's righteousness as a gift. That is so important for us to understand. But that righteousness is a legal declaration. It is not a righteousness of conduct. The righteousness of conduct that God is going to work into your life is now called sanctification. He's going to talk about that in Romans chapter 6 through 8. And this is simply this, that when God gives you new life, he gives you his son's righteousness, the proof or the evidence of that righteousness being in your life is you not only have a change of life, but a change of heart. And you begin to want to live different. You see things different. Why? Because the life of Christ is in you. And so Paul's going to talk about the practical working out of this righteousness now by sanctification through our conduct. Now, let me just say this up front because you need to hear this as well. Your conduct will not save you. You may know that, but you need to really know that. Your conduct, whether good or bad, will not save you. It is Christ's righteousness and your faith in him alone that saves you. But the natural result, the proof of that righteousness in you is that God's going to begin to work out that righteousness where it becomes a part of your life. And that's the conduct that he's going to talk about later on. In other words, a simple definition of this is that when God gives you life, life is going to promote growth. So where there is life, there is growth. If there is no life, guess what? There is no growth. This is so important for us to understand because there are some people who say, you know, I've trusted Jesus Christ. I give my life to the Lord. But as time goes on, you see no evidence of change in their life. Now, that can mean one of two things. It can mean that they never truly trusted Christ in the first place. Or it could mean that they continue to hold on to the past, their old identity, They continue to hold on to a lifestyle that is stunting or preventing their ability to grow. And I can tell you, they're the worst, most miserable Christian you ever meet in your life. One of my favorite places I enjoyed working out when I was in graduate school was a drug and alcoholic rehabilitation center for federally mandated folks to go there. And um, it was oftentimes, it was a great place to go because... People were hungry for hope. They were hungry for answers. They knew they were addicted. They knew they were in bondage. They knew they were in trouble. And so I began to talk about Jesus Christ to them. And they wanted to hear. Now, some didn't want to, but many did. And they hungered for hope. Something would break the bondage, break the power of the addictions and the memories in their lives. And I would tell them, 
You know what? You can trust Jesus Christ. But I'll tell you this much. If you truly trust him, you can go back to the old lifestyle. It's free to go. The door's wide open. You can go there if you want. You can go back to taking drugs. You can go back to being whatever it was you did. But guess what? You'll be the most miserable person on earth. Because see, something happens in us when we truly trust Christ that he gives us not only his righteousness, but he changes our heart. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that he gives us the very spirit of his son and we cry out, Abba, Father. There's a change that takes place in your life. And that change is irreversible. It is God in you and he begins to work out making you like his son, Jesus Christ. And if you go back into the old life, which you're free to do, you'll be the most tormented, miserable person on the face of the earth. You'll never be able to enjoy the drugs, the alcohol, the addictions like you did before. Why? Because there's new life in you. Why? Because you have the life of Christ in you. And you cannot live contrary to who you are in Christ. God is going to begin to work in your life. So Paul says, listen, he says, you've been given this righteousness that is declared by God because of your faith in Christ. And he's going to work out that righteousness in a practical way as you continue to grow in your life. So what does this mean, that we've been given the righteousness of Christ? Well, it means that we now have peace with God. Paul tells us, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what that means is this, is that you have peace with God, not the peace of God. There's a difference. The peace of, of God comes from our relationship with him, how we conduct our lives. But you now have peace with God. In other words, God is no longer at war with you. And you're no longer at war with God. You're not an enemy of God, and God is not an enemy of you. You have peace with God. What does that mean? It means that God loves you with all his heart as a father. Boy, I hope you hear what I'm saying this morning. That God loves you with all his heart as a father, just as he loves his own son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, now we have peace with God. And that means that we have unlimited, eternal, permanent access to our father. Well, my girls were growing up, and they still have access. But they knew that any time of the day, even though I was in the middle of something, they could call, they could knock on my office door, they could interrupt Dad. Why? Because I wanted them to know that their dad loves them so much that they have unlimited access to me. God says, I want you to know that I am so in love with you. I love you with all my heart. The same love I love my son, Jesus Christ. And that means you can come to me at any time, 24-7, 365 days a year, and even on leap years. And it doesn't matter what the concern is, whether it is large or small, you have my full attention. And I want you to know that there is no concern that is too great that I cannot handle or too small that I do not care about. Because I love you more than you have any idea. You see, for those who have trusted Christ, that hope is a reality. It's interesting, this morning we sang Horatio G. Spafford's It Is Well With My Soul. Earlier this year, one of our elders, who was a very close friend of mine, 
sat on his back porch, taking in the landscape, taking in the day. He owned a Clydesdale ranch, and he was taking in the horses, enjoying all the incredible views. He pulled out his phone, and he began to text on his phone. He said, all is well with my soul. The very next day, God took him home. God took him to heaven. We used to have long conversations about heaven. We read and talked and explored the topic biblically of what heaven is about. And both of us found ourselves lost in the wonder of God's grace that he's promising you and I a heaven, an eternal heaven, to be with his son, Jesus Christ. All is well with my soul. You see, the difference is that when we've never trusted Christ, all is not well with your soul. For those who have never trusted Christ, there is no hope, only certain judgment. And God is the judge of our lives and will either be found guilty or righteous before him, one or the other, and the difference hinges on our choice whether to trust Christ or not. Now let me just address something that I think many people wrestle with. Many people, when they read this passage, especially verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin had entered the world and death through sin, and so all death spread to all men because all sinned. When they read a passage like that and they say, wait, 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 hold on here. You're telling me, that is, the Bible's telling me that because what Adam did, I'm guilty because of that sin. Yep. I don't believe it. Well, Paul only says it here. He says it in verse 18. He says, not only have we all sinned, but he says, we're all condemned under Adam. In verse 19, he says, we're all sinners because of Adam. You see, Paul is saying that that's exactly what had happened. It's called solidarity or corporate solidarity or solidarity of identity. In other words, that through Adam, we are connected through the human family. What Adam did affected in a ripple effect all of us. Now, for those who say, well, that's not fair. I don't, I don't believe that. You operate by that all the time. So in other words, what our president does affects all of us. We see it. We know it. In Jewish thinking, if you're a Canaanite, what one Canaanite does affects the reputation of all the Canaanites. It doesn't matter. And yet we see it all the way through Scripture. Let me give an example of this. Many of you remember when Abraham is sitting by his tent on a hot day, the sun was beaming down, and he sees three figures walking toward him. Now, it says in Genesis that God had appeared to Abraham on more than one occasion. And this appearance probably was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But as Abraham is sitting in, the sun and the shade in this hot day, and he sees these three figures coming to him. He begins to recognize there is something very different about these three figures. And, not, and before long, he's in a conversation with them. He begins to realize, well, two of them are angels, and the third one is God incarnate. They have a discussion. They enjoy a meal together. But as God is leaving, he says, you know, should I tell tell Abraham what I'm going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham is walking with God. You can just imagine this. He's walking with God. And so God says, should I tell him what we're going to do? And so Abraham understands that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. Now, it just so happens that Abraham has family in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his wife and their children. 
And so Abraham says, wait, wait, God, God if, there are, if there are 50 people that are righteous in all of Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? God says, yeah, I'll spare all of Sodom and Gomorrah if there are 50 righteous. But God continues to walk towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And the sense that you get is Abraham says, uh-oh, that wasn't the right number. And so they continue with this discussion. He says, well, what if there are 40? God says, even if there are 40, Abraham, I'll spare Sodom and Gomorrah. But God continues to walk to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham begins to realize, well, that wasn't the right number either. He says, what if there were 30? And he goes, 20. Then if there were 10? And God says, even if there are 10 righteous people, I will spare all of Sodom and Gomorrah. There were not 10 people that were found. But what that passage teaches is this whole idea of corporate identity. That even if there are 10, they would represent the entirety or the whole. This is not a new concept to us. It's something we see all the time. But people will say, no, this is not fair. It's not fair that I should be blamed for Adam's guilt. It's just not right. And I would say to you, you know, you're exactly right. God is not fair. Did you say this, God is not fair? You say, I'm not sure I want to say that. God is not fair. He is not fair. God is incredibly gracious and infinitely wise. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Yes, he is just, but he never treats us as our sins actually deserve. He instead gives us a righteousness, a forgiveness, an acceptance, a hope, a love that we do not deserve. The late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, look at yourself in Adam. Though you have done nothing, you were declared a sinner. Now look at yourself in Christ and see that though you've done nothing, you're declared to be righteous. That is the parallel, he says. So God is not fair. God is gracious. He is wise. Psalm 133 says this, that he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has on us. Interesting, we sang a song this morning, a hymn by Horatio G. Spafford, a great hymn. And I don't know if you captured this one phrase in this hymn, but here are the words. My sin, oh, the bliss of this gracious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. I hope you hear what I'm saying this morning. It doesn't matter whatever it is in your life. There is no sin that is too great that God in his grace through his son Jesus Christ will forgive you. Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. I want you to do something right now. Because I think there are some of you that are hearing this right now saying, I want to believe that. 
But the guilt is so strong. It has a stranglehold on my life. I so want to believe I'm forgiven, but I don't feel forgiven. I want you to trust Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I'm going to stand on your word, not my feelings. I'm going to stand on faith, not the past. I'm going to stand on you and believe that you've forgiven me of this sin. And every time that guilty feeling, those arrows of accusation come singing in your life again, I want you to go back to that again and say, you know what? I stand on the forgiveness of Jesus Christ because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. And every time those feelings come, every time those thoughts come, every time you're aware of that, go back to God's word and say, you know what? I am forgiven. I am forgiven. Because you see, the one who wants you to stay in that stranglehold of guilt and shame is called the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself. And he loves to send those stinging arrows to remind you of how worthless, how much of a failure, how much of a disappointment, how you have miserably failed. And God says, that's not you. I don't treat you as your sins deserve. I forgive you of those sins. God's grace is greater in essence. It is also greater in extravagance. Verses 19 or 20 through 21, Paul says this. Listen carefully to say he's going to, he's going to continue a thought that he began in verse 13. As you read this passage, he introduced it in verse 13. He stopped and he went into another thought. Now he's going to complete it, but he's going to talk about the law. The law came so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is simply saying here that God gave us the law. Why did he give us the law? To increase our transgression. Let me just kind of back up here and just be very practical where we're at. There are many people who believe that the reason God gave the law is because he's harsh. He's demanding. He's a perfectionist. And therefore, we must live up to the law because God is this harsh and demanding and perfectionistic God. But that is exactly not why God gave us the law. He did not give the law because he's harsh and demanding. In fact, there are those who say, you know what? The God of the Old Testament, he is wrathful, he's vengeful. The God of the New Testament, he's loving, he's gracious, he's forgiving. Anybody who ever tells you that has demonstrated that they've never read the Bible. The fact is the God of grace in the New Testament is the same God of grace in the Old Testament. And there are many passages that show us that. One of the primary passages at the point that we're making this morning is Genesis chapter 3, the very judgment of God against Adam and Eve's sin, against the serpent. We find there that when God condemned Adam and Eve for their sin, some people think, think that was harsh. Why would God demand the, the death penalty for just this one measly little sin? That's a harsh thing to do. But they don't stop to realize that no, in fact, that was an act of grace. Had God wanted to, he was perfectly well within his right to have wiped out all mankind the moment Adam and Eve sinned, but he didn't. Yes, he judged their sin, but he judged it in grace. You see, against the backdrop of all that dark judgment, there is a bright, glistening diamond of hope. Right in the middle of all that judgment, 
He says in chapter 3, verse 15, he promises an amazing promise. It's called the Proto-Euangelion. You don't have to remember that. But it simply means this. It's the first gospel that right in the middle of all this darkness, in the middle of all this pain, all this torture, because of the condemnation of sin, God says, I'm going to give you hope, and this is my grace. And that promise is this. It's the promise of the virgin-born Messiah. He says, the seed of the woman is going to bruise you, the serpent, Satan, the great dragon, on the head. But you're going to bruise him on the hill. It is a promise in which God is one day going to send a Savior who's going to destroy the enemy, Satan himself, against us and ultimately destroy death and sin as well. You see, God is a God of grace. It's evident in the Old Testament. So to understand what Paul is talking about when he talks about the law, he didn't give the law because he's harsh and condemning. He gave the law because he is a God of grace. Now let me kind of unpack this so we understand why this is true. The purpose of the law, he says, came so that transgression would increase. In other words, what he's saying is the purpose of the law was to help us see the ugliness and the reality of our sin as it really is. Otherwise, we would not see it. So God wants us to see how truly sinful and sin-filled and controlled we really are. Let me explain it this way. When, when, whenever you see a sign in the store that says, Do not touch. Step back for a while and just kind of watch it for a while and see what people do. They're going to go, why? Because there's a natural bent inside of us to rebel against authority. Imagine if there's a sign in the park that says, do not pick the flowers. What do people do? They pick the flowers. Why? Because there is a natural rebellion against authority inside of us. We think, you know, I can pick those flowers I want to pick those. That's my choice. And so we have this natural bent rebellion that nobody's going to tell me what I can and cannot do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I don't care what anybody else says. And Paul is simply saying this. There's nothing wrong with the message, nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. It reflects God's holy character. But it reveals our tendency to want to rebel against God and therefore exposes our sinfulness in our hearts. That's what Paul is saying here. The law came so that the transgression would increase, that sin would be made evident. But he doesn't stop there. He says, where sin became more and more evident, grace abounded more and more, even more. Now, this is an important place for me to really just kind of say this. There are some people, and you may be one of them, who live by this unspoken notion, this unspoken expectation. You think that you can be good enough to earn God's pleasure. You think that you can be good enough that God will be pleased with you in your life. And so therefore, there are certain laws you keep. In fact, cults are famous for this, aren't they? You have to do this, and you can't do this, and you have to do this, and you can't do this. And if you live by this, and you live by this, then somehow you might be pleasing to God. The problem is, is this. If you read the Old Testament, I want you to notice something that God does. In Exodus chapter 20 through 24, he gives us the law. 
Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, and the impact, the practical application of those Ten Commandments in the succeeding chapters. What does God do immediately after he gives the law? What does God do in 25? In chapter 25, God immediately gives the building instructions for the tabernacle. Now, why is that important? Because the tabernacle is the place of substitutional atonement. The tabernacle is the place of sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, for the breach of the law that God had just given. What is God doing? He's saying, I know what the purpose of the law is. It's going to expose your sin. The moment that happens, you need to know there's a way of hope, there's a way of forgiveness, and therefore I'm giving you the tabernacle. Interesting. John says in John chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus, the word of God, dwelt among us. That is, he tabernacled among us. Simply remind us that Jesus is that sacrifice for us, that substitutional atonement for our sins because God knew we could not keep the law. You see, the law was meant to be a pattern for righteousness, not a means of righteousness. And we confuse that oftentimes. And you may even do that right now without even realizing it. You may do certain things in your life thinking, this would please God, this will please God. You cannot have any more of God's pleasure or God's love than you already have right now. You have it through, your, through His Son, Jesus Christ. But keeping the law is not going to make you holier. It's not going to make you more pleasing to God. You see, James says it this way in James chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Just one point. So how many of us have become really good at, at, at minimizing, justifying, rationalizing those little lies we tell? We keep all these things over here thinking somehow if I keep all these good behaviors, God will be pleased with me. But what happens when you do that is we begin to minimize or justify or rationalize or ignore the other sins in our lives in order to make ourselves bolstered up and feel good. So all those little lies that we tell, we tend to write off. Or how many times have we coveted something that someone else has thinking, you know what, that's okay, everybody does it. And yet we've just violated God's law. Or how many times have we done things in our lives that we know are worthy of God's guilt? And yet we try to juggle or minimize or justify what we have done. The Bible simply says this, there is no way you can please God. The only way you can please him is through his son, Jesus Christ. Why am I saying all this? Because I have met believers that have been believers for years, and they still think that if I go to church on Sunday, God will be happy with me. Or some people think you can only go to church on Saturday, the real Shabbat, and then God will be happy with you. But that's trying to keep the law. That's the ceremonial part of the law. And the book of Hebrews makes it very clear that Shabbat, meaning rest, the real rest is not a day, it's a person. The whole purpose of the ceremonial part of the law of Shabbat of rest is to point to Jesus Christ. He is the rest of your soul. The point simply is this, as the law was given to us to reveal our sin and our need for Christ. So Paul says the very purpose of the law was not to remove sin, but to reveal sin in our lives. So let me kind of come back to where I began this morning. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you wrestle with things in your life 
guilt that constantly torments you. It plagues your memory. It strains your relationships. It leaves you in a place of guessing in your relationship with God. Does he really love me? Am I really forgiven? But there's this one thing, God, I can't get over. Get over it. Because Christ overcame it for you. Would you do like Martin Luther did? Would you stand on the word of God and say the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin? You see, God doesn't want you to live in hiding anymore. You can't hide from him. He doesn't want you to wear fig leaves of excuses or justification or minimization or rationalization. You don't have to do that anymore. God wants you to know that you're forgiven and he invites you to a place of his grace. You know what God wants you to do? He wants you to acknowledge that sin. He wants you to admit your helplessness to please him outside of being good enough through Christ and to receive that free gift of abundant grace. I really hope you're hearing what I'm saying this morning. Because the Bible says that Jesus Christ came to set us free. If the Son of God shall set you free, you shall be free in Indeed, the Bible says that Jesus came to give us a life and give us abundant life. Why aren't you living in that freedom? Why aren't you living in that abundant life? The problem is not with God. The problem is with you. By faith, will you accept the truth that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin? Will you live in that freedom and that abundant life? Will you pray with me?